The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Philippians in chapter 4. We're actually starting a a new summer series this summer. So we are going to be, um, over the next eight weeks, June and July, be transitioning and looking at a variety of passages. The series is going to be misunderstood passages. We know out there the Bible has been taken out of context in a variety of ways. We've been believing things that the Bible actually says it might not actually say. And so we're just going to have a, a look at several of these topics. So there's... Um, You're going to see me up here a couple times. You're going to see all the staff up here a couple times. There's even going to be a special guest here and there. So um, we are are going to be jumping around. And this morning we get to start in one of the most um, popular of the verses. One of the ways that we collected these verses, we hopped on good old social media and said, hey, what are the verses that you hear the most either taken out of context or you'd love to hear about? And Philippians 4.13 was the first one. Now let me for a moment, I'm going to not always be in this voice, but I want to be a little snarky for a minute. I want to be a little, uh, kind of poke each other and poke ourselves in the eyes. There's nothing more American than the thought that we can do anything that we put our minds to. It's like our historical DNA is rooted in the ideal that we can do, we can become, we can achieve anything that we set our minds to. If you give us enough time, if we have the right amount of energy and effort and money, sky's the limit, right? Like that's what our kids are told. That's this expectation that the most, um, that all, if, if you, if we, we can do all that we want to do. And we, even as Americans, because we have, this is the snarky part, a foundation in Christianity, even have a Bible verse to prove it. Philippians 4.13. I can do, we can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. It would seem that every high school locker room, every YMCA fitness, every motivational moment and movement has this verse somewhat attached to it. As I was thinking about this verse this week, and I was going to my personal gym here in town, and I observed that out of all the t-shirts people wear to work out in, three of them, and I go to a pretty small gym, three of them had this verse on their back. And, all, and I went to, and I thought it was like, oh, is that from like a church camp? Or is that from, no, they're all from like fitness ventures. But on the back, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, it's, like, it's, it's this idea from this verse that if we draw from the power of Christ, we can do anything. And we treat Christ as if he's this spiritual hype man. As if he's this genie in a bottle. It's like he's, he's a shot of pre-workout before we do something difficult. It's this comprehensive statement that if God is on our side, we can do whatever we want. But it makes me ask the question, does Christ really care who wins the Friday night football game? Does he really care if you can get that one rep max lift? I wonder if that's why they put it on the gym wall. Does he really care if the business venture that you in particular are focusing on, that he wants that to actually come through? Does he really care about you acing the test? You see, it would seem that what we do is we think if we can get God on our side, we can do whatever we want. This is how this verse is culturally and traditionally interpreted. This is how individuals, that they just stumble upon this one verse, Philippians 14, 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They, um, they apply it to themselves and they apply it to anyone who will listen. Now prior to us getting into the context, I, I just want to state how unwise it is to use God in this way. 
And I know it's a little harsh to say use God, but that's actually what you're doing. Because it's unwise, first and foremost, if we, approach, if we are approaching God in the wrong way. If we are approaching him and saying, God, here's what I want to do. Will you please bless this? It makes me think of an Old Testament story. Maybe one that you know about. It happens in 1 Samuel 4. Context of the story is that Israel was fighting the Philistines once again. They fought the Philistines for like half the Old Testament, I feel like. It was the one people that just wouldn't go away. And I'm sure that, that that's how they felt with, with kind of both sides of the party. Well, in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines were fighting Israel. And on the first day of the battle, Israel got stomped. It says 4,000 people died. And if you just lost 4,000 people in one day, you are now going to say, okay, we can't do that again. How are we going to win? And some really smart people along the way thought, hmm, if we can get God involved in this, if we can get him on our side, I think we've got a chance. Because if God's here, we can do anything. So here's how it went. Some really smart people said, well, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. I want to read a couple of verses. This is 1 Samuel 4, 3 through 5. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Sheol, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Sheol and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. I mean, they are talking up the idea that this is God. They understand the weight of this symbol. They recognize, no, we're bringing God along in this venture. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It wasn't written yet, but the line that was in their head was, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Guess what happened? Next day, went out to battle, carrying this Ark of the Covenant, and they lost again, hardcore. And not only did they lose, and people died. They also lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and these two priests, Hopni and Phinehas, died protecting the Ark of the Covenant. And then the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and carted it off to their land. So now the Israelites look like a bunch of fools because here you took your most precious, precious possession, the Ark, and offered it up to this foreign nation to then mock. Now, the story goes on, and you can keep reading how the ark caused bales to fall down and break, and the, and the Philistines, uh, in the end, give it back. But they look like fools. I would say that if we interpret Philippians 4.13 in the way that our culture does, we, like the Israelites, are going to look like fools. So, how should we interpret this passage? I'm going to try to now tone down the snarkiness. If you're ever wondering how to interpret a passage, like that doesn't make any sense. What does this actually mean? What, what's, what's being said here? It's always necessary to look at the context, the greater context. And it might surprise you, but the context of Philippians 4.13, this iconic sentence that's plastered all over everything uh, in Middle Tennessee, comes in the middle of a section talking about finances. Now, I know we just had a financial report. 
I didn't plan that. God did. He's, he's in his providence. But it comes in the middle of a section on finances. You see, Paul received a very generous gift from the Philippian church. Paul is in prison at this moment when he's writing to the Philippians. And um, it's said that Epaphroditus, who knew of Paul and was at the Philippian church, knew of Paul's needs and collected a gift for Paul, very much like we collected a gift for Sri Lanka, and brought this gift to Paul and said, here, the church in Philippi wants you to have this. And Paul, out of response, because clearly he was just given an amazing gift, writes this letter before us, writes the book of Philippians as a thank you for this generous gift. But look where the thank you portion actually shows up in this book. At the very end. He doesn't start by saying thank you. He ends with saying thank you. So this whole section of 4, 10 through 20-ish is this whole thank you. He finally gets here and goes, oh, and by the way, thank you for your gift. But it wasn't, Paul didn't put the thank you at the end of Philippians because he wasn't thankful for it. Rather, his heart was overflowing with so many other elements of thanksgiving that he's like, I got to tell you a whole bunch of other stuff. Oh yeah, and by the way, thank you for that. So this passage that we get to look at, Philippians 4.13, we actually have to look at the greater passage, the context of the passage, which is Philippians 4.10 through 14. So if you will read this with me together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. When we look at the greater context of this passage, we see that in just a few short verses, it's not a declaration. This verse is not, is not a declaration that says that with God, we can do whatever we set our minds to. Rather, we see it's a declaration that through dependence on God, we can do anything he gives us to do. I want to talk for a moment about dependence and independence with God. Dependence is almost a bad word, right, in our culture. As Americans, we shouldn't depend on anyone. We should be independent. I mean, on the world scale, we do not want to be dependent upon anyone, right? Like, that's what we're fighting against. We keep our independence at all costs. On a personal scale, we don't want to be dependent upon anyone long term. We're all fighting for that independence when we can finally say, I've arrived. This is where, you know, we look back last week as we finished up our, our series in Revelation, the small series. And what was the last church that we looked at? Laodicea. And I said, it's like the church that was written, like, Laodicea is written for the Western church because what was Laodicea's problem? They looked at Christ and said, I need nothing. Here's the thing. God doesn't want us to say, I need nothing. God actually doesn't want us to live in a state of independence. God wants us to live in a state of dependence because independence occurs when we take God and we push him into our chosen activities. This is how we continue to misuse this verse. Because instead of saying, God, what would you have for me? We say, God, I want this. Now, can you please bless it? 
So it's fascinating that Paul uses this thank you note to teach the Philippians how he lives a life of dependence. But more importantly, he uses this letter to encourage the Philippians to place their, depend, their dependence on the right thing, on the right person. Just, let's just for a moment consider the tone. Imagine, I, I'm just going to go here because I didn't even think about this. It's not my notes. But imagine if the church in Sri Lanka, after we just gave that very generous gift to them, wrote this back to us in return. This type thank you note. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. I mean, not that I'm speaking that I'm in need, for I've learned contentment and everything. I didn't need it. Thanks for it anyway. I didn't need it. You'd be like, what? What? Yes, you did. Epaphroditus came and said you needed it. Epaphroditus said, came and said you didn't have food. Epaphroditus said that you were in want. And now you're saying you don't need it? Well, hang on, Paul. I mean, it, we would expect that the way that he would respond would be overwhelmed with thanksgiving, overjoyed, elated, singing praises. Thank you so much. Without you, I couldn't live. Thank you so much. Without you, I couldn't eat. Thank you so much. You were the thing that I needed the most. And then he gets this letter back and it's like, actually, wait. My joy is not primarily in the people and in the gift of Philippi, but rather my joy is in the Lord. So through this this note, he's, he's showing the Philippian church, here's actually where I derive my joy from. I'm so thankful for this gift. But that's not what, that's not what gives me joy. I just want to walk through this verse by verse for a moment. There's only a few verses. In verse 10, we see the, the appreciation for their concern. Again. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that at now at length you have revived your concern for me. This word concern here, it's an interesting one. It's actually the, um, it's the most used verb in all of Philippians. It's ferono. It's used multiple times. We're going to, um, so like in one seven, here's kind of what it means. Here's what this, here, I, I, I should say this first. This verb means multiple things. It, it means to be associated with. It means to be thinking about. It means to be connected to, working for, feeling for. It's this concern of um, I'm on your side. I'm with you. I'm standing next to you. It both has this empathy and um, uh, the, this, this um, desire to serve. I want to be with you. So like here's how it's been, here's how it's used elsewhere. Like in one seven, it says, it was right for me to feel this way. So there's a feeling connected with it. In, in 2.2, it says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. I mean, just think about then where this verse goes. This is the famous passage of him describing the, um, uh, the, the, the humanity and divinity of Christ and that he came to flesh. So now he's saying, I want you to have the same ferona, the same mind. I want you to feel the same way that, um, that, that Christ felt for you. In 2.5, it says, have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus in the same way that, that Jesus lived and felt and operated. I want you to do the same thing. In 3.15 he goes, let those who are mature think this way. Let those who are mature be associated and connected in this way that they, that, that they understand that they belong together and if anything, and if anything you think otherwise, God will, 
reveal that also to you. In 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. So he's making this whole distinction of there are some who are concerned for the right things. There are others who aren't concerned for the right things. There are others who are concerned for the wrong things that have placed their concern on earthly things. And here Paul, just to bring it back to 4.10 here, Paul is saying, I'm so glad that you're concerned for the right things. But here's the thing. When Paul says, I'm so glad that he's concerned for the right things, Paul is thinking far greater than for my stomach. Paul's saying, I'm so thankful that you are concerned with the proclamation of the gospel that you are giving to me so that the gospel can be proclaimed, so that that the news can be spread. I mean, Paul is an apostle. He understands his position that when the Philippian church is giving to Paul, they're giving far more to a man. They're giving to the gospel message being proclaimed. And in the end of the book, When we come down to looking at this whole section, even after they receive this gift, when he turns back to them and he thanks them for it, what he says is, I want you to understand why you gave. I want you to understand what this gift does. I want you to understand that your concern has to be for the right thing because Paul is desperate for them to be concerned with the right things in their life. And he's thankful for them and he thanks them for showing that concern through their financial gift. So for the church in Philippi, there was a plot twist change in tone they get this thing back and I'm wondering if they're reading this and they're like did he get the money did Epaphroditus run off with it when's he going to say thank you for it I, I, I worked hard for that money and the plot twist is that Paul writes back to them and goes I was content either way I was content either way verse 11 Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I'm content either way. Thank you. But you didn't fill up my joy by this gift. Why? Because his dependence wasn't upon them. His dependence wasn't upon money. His dependence wasn't upon status. His dependence was upon Christ. One of the things that I hate the most is the fundraising week on the radio. They say it's once a year. It's like every other week. And some of them it's like, well, we didn't get enough, so we're going to run it again next week. It's very much like the, you know, the old time uh, Baptist church is like, well, there's not enough in the plate, so let's circle again. I just, they're constantly running this thing. And what do they say every time? If you benefit from our programming, considering partnering with us, right? I've never called in. I like the radio. I've never called in. I don't, it's, it's, some of it, I was like, who, who gives to these things? Maybe I shouldn't admit that publicly. I don't know. When Paul here thanks them for this gift, what he is thanking them is that The Philippian church is partnering with Paul in his ministry for the the gospel. That's interesting. You can learn a lot about an individual when you look at what they partner with. Let me state that differently. You can learn a lot about it and you can learn a lot about an individual when you look at their bank account. 
if you looked at my bank account today, you would see the things that Amy and I are interested in. You would see the things that I give towards. You would see the things that I purchase. You would see the things that I value because I identify those things with the resources that I allocate towards them. You would see that I am all about my house because I want to keep a roof over my head so I pay my mortgage every month. You would see that I try to be as healthy as possible so I pay the gym membership. You would see that you fill in the blank of all the things. I could do the same for you. I could see what you are about by looking at your bank account. I could see what you're concerned about, what you're associated with, what you're thinking about, what you're working for, what you're feeling when I look at what you give. Paul here is just so thankful that in all that he has seen that the Philippian church is concerned for the right things and therefore is giving of their resources in the appropriate ways and yet he wants them to understand that while he's thankful for the gift, his contentment doesn't come from it. And so we... As givers towards the body of Christ, as givers towards the things of God, as, as um, managers of our money can learn from Paul. And we can learn from the contentment that he has. Because again, verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let's talk about this word contentment for a minute. What's that mean? It's to be at peace with. It's to be satisfied. It's to... Be at rest in. I'm content here. I'm happy. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad, you know, I'm thankful that I'm not, I, I'm not over there. It's this, you know, he's, he's solidified. He's rooted. He's grounded. It's this understanding of I'm good here. I've learned in whatever situation to be content. Whew, I've been in some situations I cannot say that I'm satisfied, happy, and thankful to be here. You know, contentment, however, as he's describing this, is not about self-sufficiency. Because as I said, today the way that we reach contentment is by independence. When we're pursuing contentment, we go, allow me to control all the various things in my life. Then I can be content. It was actually the same thing in Paul's day. But instead of this idea of building up those individuals with, with um, a lot of wealth, that's how kind of we go after contentment, the individuals in his society that were viewing this self-sufficiency, this contentment, were the Stoics. Because the Stoics in their day approached this by saying, if I can reach an inner tranquility, if I can uh, come to understand how I'm going to deal with everything, if I can learn to function outside of everything else in my life, I'm going to be good. But Paul here says, listen, I'm going to learn contentment not because I'll get through it, because I'll figure it out, because I'll be okay at the end, because I'm going to get there, self-sufficiency. No, Paul says, I'm going to learn contentment from him who strengthens me. You know, I said, this contentment is this peace, this satisfaction, this, um, this kind of a resting position. You know, one of the things that I talk about often to my shame and that I hear so often thrown around is the stuff that we want, that we desire, that we long for. I mean, it comes up in casual conversations. You drive into church and you pass by that house that you so would love to move into, right? Maybe I'm the only one. 
I so want that house. I so want that car. I so want that job. I so want that piece of land. I so want that bank account number. I so want that achievement at work. I so want that personal accomplishment. I so want that personality trait. I mean, we throw this stuff around. The list can go on and on, and your list can be as particular as you want it to be. But how does the Bible talk about this? How does the Bible talk about the opposite of contentment? It's one little word. Coveting. When we walk around and say, I want this and I want that, I want this other thing, we're coveting. We speak about our coveting all the time and, and we don't really even you know, take a step back and go, that's not that bad. I just want to remind everyone how the Bible speaks about coveting. It is so bad it gets its own commandment. We understand why murder gets its own commandment. We don't talk about that. We understand why adultery gets its own commandment. We understand why stealing gets its own commandment. Coveting, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his resources, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Romans 7, this this passage that Paul unpacks the law and the sin in his own heart, how does he use, uh, what, what sin does he use that says, this sin revealed the law to me, this sin revealed the depth of my sin to me. You know what sin he uses? I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. It, you can see this in Romans 7, 7 through 12. He uses covetousness. When Paul came to understand the depth of his depravity, it was not because he realized, I love killing those people, because he did. I love being self-righteous. I'm sure he was. It was his covetousness. I mean, just consider Ephesians 5, 1 through 4. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Why is coveting such a horrible thing that it gets its own commandment? Why was Paul so personally convicted to this point that he used it as the illustration of Romans 7? And why is coveting named right next to the sins of sexual immorality and impurity? Because a life that doesn't find their contentment in God goes against every fiber of our created being. A life that does not find Your contentment in God goes against every fiber of your created being. We were never designed to live independently. We were never designed to say, I can do this on my own. We were designed to live a life that is dependent upon God, but even more than that, that is dependent upon others. Again, you go back to Genesis One and two, it was not right for man to be alone. I will create a helper for him. And yes, I know that is marriage and that is procreation. But at the same time, that is saying it is not right for man to be alone. You need this fellowship because then what's the other command? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and live in community with each other, helping each other, being dependent upon God. That's how we're recreated to live. Now, how did Paul get to this contentment? Well, he learned it. I've read it multiple times. He learned contentment. And how, how did he learn this contentment? Not just through the good times, but also through the bad. I know how to be brought low, because he had been. I know how to abound, because he had been. 
in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What did Paul learn in this? Is that things don't ultimately matter. That's what 12 is talking about. You could give me a few things, great. You could give me many things, awesome. You could give me all the food I ever wanted, awesome. You, should, you could give me no food that I, no food and be really hungry, great. I don't find my satisfaction and my contentment in things. His contentment is due to his dependence on another. This is why when he comes to verse 13, this verse that we love to quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I can do all things. Be, it might be plenty, it might be hungry, it might be needs unmet, it might be needs taken care for, but whatever God has for me, I'll be content in it. Paul in his contentment is speaking in self-sufficient terms. This is the paradox of this whole thing. It's, it's like he's saying, thank you, I don't really need it. I, I didn't need that money. I appreciate you, but even if you didn't show up, I was good. I so need those resources, but if I didn't have those resources, I would be fine. It's this paradox of that as, as creatures who are living in light of Christ and light of God, understanding that, occur, that our relationship is with him, it's this paradox because Paul can say, well, I'm actually strong when I'm weak. And he can say, I'm independent only when I'm dependent upon Christ. See, Paul is expressing that the, the proper action and pursuit of the Christian life is one that is lived in dependence upon the Lord. Just as we close, think about the power of this worldview. Think about how different this is from our unbelieving neighbors in a world that rejects Christ. Because that world lives in this understanding of, well, I will be satisfied, I will be content, I will be taken care of when this business venture goes through. When the economy looks this way. When this guy's in the office. When this political party is running the House and the Senate. When... I have this position at work. When my health looks like this. When, I mean, I could, I could keep going. And it's placed out ahead of us and it's got all these things connected to it. Are you guys tired yet of pursuing all those things? <laughs> I'm tired of stating those things. And in my own heart, I could keep going. All these false idols that I place before us and say, well, if it's this and this and this and this and this, I mean, it's this algorithm that every person has to hit that it's like, well, when I can do all these things and I own all this stuff and my kids are in all these places and I have all this stuff, then I'll be happy. But if one thing's out of place, then you're not, you're not happy. And you're constantly pursuing this thing and then what? New Year's resolution rolls around again. You go, this year, the way that I'll be happy is if I do and we create all these resolutions thinking this is how I find contentment. Paul flips that. Whether the right person is the president or the wrong person is the president, in our opinion, whether, whether we're in this house or that house, this job or that job, th these amount of resources, those amount of resources, I will be content. Why? Because I'm dependent 
upon the never-changing God. That's the thing here. All those other things that I just said, those are all fleeting. Those are, you know, wind blows, blows through, keeps going. You can't grasp it. You can't hold on to it. You can't attain it. I mean, even down to this, this week at summer camp, we're going to be looking at um, the one true hero, prophet, priest, and king. And I mean, even what the Bible tells us is we can have good prophets, but they die. We can have good priests, but they die. We can have good kings, but they die. We need something that is going to always be around. That's God. He's always here. He's never leaving us, nor forsaking us. Which gets me just to the last passage that I want to read. This is Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with whatever you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The reason that we can boldly proclaim I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me isn't because we are going to achieve all things. Rather, we can say, if Christ is for us, who's against us? Because he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. As we turn towards the communion table this morning, I mean, how fantastic of a gift that we have. You could be feeling your need this morning just because the, the, the weight of your sin, the weight of your inability, understanding God, I keep trying on my own and I can't do it. I trust that you are good and yet I keep failing. And, and we need this, a, a reminder that like, oh yeah, he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. This table is never going away. These elements are never going to be nullified. Nothing better is going to come along and say, well, Christ worked for a while. Now you need some, you know, version 2.0. He satisfied those requirements. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, we would invite you to take this table with us. It is a family meal because it is that thing that we take as the body of Christ and as being a partaken of in thousands of other churches all over the state and the world. And what we take this together is we're saying what we're resting in, what we are content upon is not what we have produced, but what God has given us. But as we also say every week, if you're here and you're not a believer, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, all of this stuff is suspect. You're like, what, what is this thing? We would ask that you just let the table pass you by. Or if you're here, and you're feeling that weight of your sin, realizing, hmm, maybe I'm, maybe I actually haven't repented as I should. Maybe I haven't turned from my sin. Maybe my contentment isn't solely, fully, only upon God. We'd also ask that you let this table pass you by because we don't want you to take it in an unworthy manner. Because we don't take this table to to fill up our salvation. We don't take this table to double down upon it. Rather, we take it to celebrate that the only hope we have in life and death is Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look to you at all times and in every situation and say that you are enough. Thank you that while you might not give us what we want, physically earthly want he will give us what we need 
Thank you that while this world is crazy and is, throws us so many lies to say that this is the next and best greatest savior and if we can achieve this or attain that or get this thing, then we'll be satisfied. Lord, thank you that we can look at all those and go, they're false idols. They're insufficient. But you are not. Or for those who are here this morning and their hearts are, are, um, are dead to sin. Lord, I pray that you would uh, raise them in Christ, that you would open their eyes, that you would convict them of their sin, that they would turn to you and, and realize and recognize that you are the only source of life. Thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.